I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. At the age of 21, Matthew Zachary, a college senior, concert pianist, and composer, was diagnosed with a brain tumor and not expected to live long. He survived his cancer, and through the experience, he became aware of the gap in resources for young adult cancer patients and survivors. To address that gap, he launched what became Stupid Cancer, an organization that focuses on the needs of this often overlooked segment. We spoke to Zachary about his experience with cancer the evolution of his organization, and why he considers his illness the best thing that ever happened to him. Matthew, thanks for joining us. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your organization, Stupid Cancer, the need to connect young adult cancer patients to age-appropriate resources, and, and how the organization has evolved but first, I'd like to start with your own story. In 1995, at the age of 21, you were a, a college senior, a, a concert pianist and composer, and, and you were diagnosed with pediatric brain cancer. If, if I understand this correctly, it began with the loss of function in your left hand. But what led to your diagnosis, and, and what were you told at the time? Wow, that's a rabbit hole of a story. Yeah, uh, during the summer between my junior and senior year of undergraduate, I was working uh, as an intern in the World Trade Center in Manhattan, and I started to get a, uh, a tingling, like when you sleep on your hand and it gets all numb and weird, like the pins and needles were starting to happen in my uh, left hand at the, the extremities at the ends of the fingertips, and I didn't know what that was, and it wouldn't go away, and then I got weird headaches, and what are you, you ignore it when you're that young. 21. I uh, got back to school, immediately noticed that I couldn't arpeggiate on the piano the way I used to, and went to the campus services repeatedly, got misdiagnosed with a bunch of things, and finally uh, was diagnosed with this uh, tumor in my, my brain, which they later found out was malignant. But the process by which it all happened was fairly inane and surreal. Because I didn't present with symptoms that a doctor might typically associate with a brain tumor in such a young person. And it wasn't until I started to exhibit what they then called real symptoms, as if like my other symptoms weren't symptoms, that they started to take me seriously. And those were very severe, like um, uh, a seizure and slurring my speech and blurred vision and fainting and dizziness. And then I finally saw a different doctor, thankfully, who said, you probably have something really, really wrong with you. Here, go get an MRI. And that's how it all unfolded. So you were originally given six months to live. That, that was about 20 years ago. What are you doing here? Well, yeah, the, the diagnosis was wholly wow, we've never seen this in someone your age before. We don't know how this is. Like, don't tell me the bad news first, which they did. There was a 20% chance I would survive 
the surgery alone, which was part of their uh, predictions. And um, <clears throat> six months after that, they then told me I had a 50% chance to live for five more years, which is also great news when you're 22 years old. Um, I, I'm on the record as saying I have no idea how I'm still here, why I'm still here, um, what reasons, how you rationalize your dogma with the universe. I tend to uh, ascribe that to three things. Um, something tangible, uh, something esoteric, and something spiritual. And it all is based on one of my favorite books of all time, Love, Medicine, and Miracles by Dr. Bernie Siegel. This was a, a very different time. The internet was just coming into being, but the, the types of resources we think of being available today simply didn't exist for cancer patients. What was the landscape like? when you were diagnosed and, and going through the, the treatment of this disease? I think we could all forgive the 90s for sucking in general. <laughs> but, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know. It wasn't possible to find and connect with people. I think AOL was just getting its comeuppance, but no one was really using it for anything health-related. And uh, I think there was like a listserv, if anyone listening that's under 30, a listserv is kind of like a chat room, but with words and lots of people. So it's kind of the days before chat rooms. And there was a listserv out of MIT for brain tumors. And I joined the listserv with my AOL account. And I got connected to like lots of really old people with brain tumors. And there was no one there that was young and could get what I was going through WebMD didn't exist, not that you need WebMD because it basically convinces you that you are sick, whether you are or not. And um, resources were very finite. There were not nonprofits out there advocating for young people. Uh, a lot of the pediatric cancer work wasn't based on surviving, it was based on cure. They kind of just dumped you in the woods instead of have a nice life. And it was very lonely and isolating, but again, I didn't know that it could be any other way. Well, what did that mean to you as a patient? What what was that feeling of, of isolation? It was very angry. I, I never felt like they treated me like a human being. I felt like they treated me like a statistic, like a piece of meat, like something that could be published in a journal somewhere. And I'm a 21-year-old concert pianist who lost the ability to play in his left hand. One might presume it would be nice for that major cancer center with its billions of dollars to say, you know what, we should give this kid some PT. We should give this kid a chance to live his life and help him regain what was lost. That never happened at all. So to me, there was such a missed opportunity to recognize humanity in who I was as a person, not the disease that I had. And I carry that anger a very long time, and I still carry that anger. And that is what propelled me 10 years later to realize I could finally do something that would make that potentially not ever happen again to someone my age. Stupid Cancer, the, the organization, actually began as Steps for a Living, and later I'm too young for this Cancer Foundation in, in 2007. And then it became Stupid Cancer in 2012. What was the original vision for the organization, and how has it evolved? 
stupid cancer is such a byproduct of cause and effect and learning by failing and I, I, I guess trying to scale to meet needs and doing a lot of listening. It eventually found its place and its base as stupid cancer. My original vision with Steps for Living was based on the community of young adults I finally started to meet. It took me a good seven years to meet another person that had cancer in their 20s and could understand, oh, you lost your friends, me too. Oh, you didn't get to fulfill your dreams, me too. Oh, you, you know, were infertile, me too. Oh, you, you, you lost all this weight and you can't identify with who you are. Yeah, me too. You couldn't find a job, me too. So in meeting that community, and there was a lot of them, it was kind of an all-at-once amazing experience, I met a lot of other musicians who had beaten cancer, like an, an astonishing number of young adult cancer survivor professional musicians. Talk about a, a niche market. So Steps for Living was born kind of as a record company. My goal was to produce concerts and albums, compilations of music written by young musicians who've been affected by cancer and how that art manifested itself through their survivorship. And, and it worked. We produced some CDs and held a couple of concerts and curated a lot of interest and a lot of media. And it just didn't seem like it was sustainable or scalable. Um, and that was around the time that like iTunes was coming out and everyone was stealing music and it was getting like it wasn't had made its resurgence and its re renaissance like today. Became um I'm too young for this cancer foundation in two thousand and seven as a pivot because of a public health initiative that came out of Livestrong in two thousand six about how young adults had not seen an improvement in their survivorship, in their five-year cure rates, had not really improved since the 1970s versus looking at children and older adults. There's a litany of reasons that we'll get into, but when I read this report that survival rates in young adults had not improved in 30 years, now 40 years, because this was 10 years ago, this was my rationale to start, I'm too young for this, as a bullhorn that was very generational and very disruptive and very anachronistic in how it approached the way Gen Xers back then, because millennials were like 10 years old, how Gen Xers related to their experience with cancer. And it became an overnight hit, and it grew and it grew and it grew, and stupid cancer was always the kind of throwaway slogan, the throwaway tagline was always stupid cancer. And kind of how, like, American Express became Amex, that's similar to the rebranding. We just followed the way of the crowd. So Stupid Cancer essentially is an extension of I'm Too Young for This. Um, but I'm Too Young for This is entirely different than what Step Shilling set out to be. Well, Stupid Cancer says that it exists to ensure that no young adult goes unaware of the age-appropriate resources that are that they're entitled to so they can get busy living. What is the age of the population you serve? How, how big a population is that? And and as you yourself has aged, have you kind of stretched the, the target age that you're, you're aiming at? Well, the initial age bracket 
was based on the National Cancer Institute report. They framed it as 15 years old to 39 years old. That was the considered the AYA, Adolescent Young Adult um, Patient Population. And now it's been uh, nearly 10 years since that report came out, and there's been so much data, so much market research, so much understanding of this demographic that we've made a conscious decision to not change NCI policy, but expand that the young adult cancer movement really comprises people affected by it between 13 and 45. And 13 is based on that there's a lot of teenagers or minors that are grossly underserved and need unique services, and we are filling that gap. And 45 is an age where reproductive issues are still a major concern when you're diagnosed with cancer. So our demographic falls midpoint around 26, but we moved from a position of young adults with cancer to anyone affected by young adult cancer. So that now includes not just people like me who were young and got it, but children who got it as children and are now no longer children. There are roughly a million young adults in this country who beaten or have cancer right now, and a third of them, about 350,000, beat cancer as kids. There's an entire generation of 20 and 30-somethings out there who had cancer 20 and 30 years ago that are now part of this movement, along with our parents, who are largely boomers. So there are roughly 20 million Americans who I believe comprise being affected by young adult cancer. And that's a very powerful group to leverage their anger and to pay it forward and make life better for people like us. What constitutes age-appropriate resources? Well, I mentioned fertility. Reproductive health is jeopardized when you get radiation, surgery, chemotherapy. If you have testicular cancer and you're 25, it's a hell of a lot different than getting it when you're 80 because you have the right to be a mom or a dad. And when you're diagnosed in your fertile years, it's a very different experience and impact on what that means to parenting. And the same with if you have a child that's young, you're not going to be 80. You're probably going to be 30. How do you talk to that child about mommy and daddy having a boo-boo? What is it like to be a caregiver to a spouse when you're only 26 years old? What is it like to have to navigate college when you're 18 with cancer? How do you talk to your HR department when you just started your job and you're pregnant with breast cancer at 25 years old? This is what makes young adult cancer different. Not any better, worse, more special, less special. Age appropriate is what's relevant to you at that point in time in your life. Reproductive concerns, peer support, insurance navigation. You're not on Medicaid. You're not retired. You're not worried about your retirement home. You have a life. You're just getting your life started. The relevancies of where you are in this bracket are what defines what is most important to you. Let's walk through a, a few of the programs that Stupid Cancer runs. Perhaps you can start with CancerCon. Sure. So in 2008, a year after it was, I was just I was the only employee for five years. So in 2008, when it was just me, 
<clears throat> we got a partnership grant with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society here in New York to produce an event. We didn't know what it would be, but we wanted to do a conference that invited young adults with any cancer to come and aggregate for a day of workshops and, you know, social events and whatnot. And it was called the OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults. And out of the blue with no marketing, and I'm the only person on staff and volunteers from LLS, 235 people came out of the woodwork for this incredible day that we never expected would be anything. So OMG became our pivotal annual event for 09, 2010, 2011, 2013, 2014. And in 2014, we had moved from New York to Las Vegas for three years in 2012 and realized that the conference was getting so big, it needed to have something bigger than it. So CancerCon was born as a level above the OMG Cancer Summit to be international, to bring industry Media, IT, social networking, Silicon Valley, health startups are all under this large circus tent of CancerCon now, which gets hundreds of millions of media impressions, international media coverage, uh, six to seven hundred attendees, 60 exhibitors. It, it, it's become a massive event that we spend over a year playing in advance. And CancerCon.org is the website. We're already well into building for next April in Denver, and um, it, it's the most exciting cancer event in the country. How about Instapeer? Instapeer came out, and I'm a very product-oriented person, so everything we do is very product-based, like like uh, you go to a supermarket and there's stuff on the shelf to choose from. So Instapeer is a mobile platform that we've been working on for three and a half years, again, largely designed with the teens interested what do teens need that is not being given to them? They're not picking up the phone and calling the helplines. They're not logging onto websites and going to cancer forums to talk to other people. They're either stuck in a hospital for weeks at a time or they're stuck at home with no way to talk to people. The insight we got from the teens was they would like to have WhatsApp and Match.com for teen cancer. So we built it. And Instapeer is essentially a messaging-only platform that's entirely anonymous, but it matches you to other people just like you based on what you have, how old you are, where you live, what are your side effects, what are you worried about, are you gay, are you straight, are you married, you have children, what religion are you, what's your spirituality... It really isn't, I would say, more of an eHarmony than a Match.com. And it was built for teens. And now it's working. We're in public beta with about, I would say, maybe 2,000 active users with having about 20,000 messaging conversations a week, getting less isolated, getting connected to each other, hearing from other people's stories. And it's now moving into phase three for 2016, which is going to involve a much larger scaled version of it, which would sustain millions of people, partnerships with other nonprofit organizations, with cancer centers, with nurses and social workers. And it's going to be a really big deal um, starting probably next summer to integrate content and resources and other people around the world. I have been um, 
messaging with this 20-year-old kid from Beirut, Lebanon, who's a med student with sarcoma. And it blows me away that I could have a conversation with a 20-year-old med student with sarcoma in Beirut about what his life is like and what he needs and how we can help and learn from each other. So that's just one example of its potency. And we're incredibly excited that this is going to be the direction we're putting most of our effort into for next year. There's also the Stupid Cancer Road Trip. What's that? So the road trip was born out of being drunk on bacon at the diner with my co-founder in 2011 when we realized how cool it would be since we're moving the OMG Summit from New York to Vegas. Let's drive to Vegas from New York because why not? And I said, I'm way too old for that. You do it. I said, sure. So we decided to leverage who our major communities were between New York and Vegas and we got a car, we wrapped it with our logo, and Kenny drove across the country, stopping in major cities where we had communities, and just kind of made a, a deal out of it. And it became the signature annual PR thing that we do, and now leading up to CancerCon. So this spring, in April, Kenny and our multimedia director, John Sabia, who lost his dad to brain cancer, um, we'll be going again um, across the country from New York to Denver, but stopping along the West Coast, maybe Seattle, and meeting hundreds of people, visiting cancer centers, networking with our communities, survivors, raising awareness for our brand and our why we matter. And stupidcancerroadtrip.org uh, is a content repository of three and a half years of amazing partnerships and relationships, and it's become our signature annual um, uh, public relations awareness campaign. What impact do you think Stupid Cancer has had so far, and what haven't you accomplished as an organization that, that you'd like to? I think the challenge of being a 21st century social media built brand is that it's hard to understand I, I, to, to the layperson, the general public, that we've been so um, saturated with the idea of curing cancer and cancer research that we've lost sight of the fact that most people live and that it's often a, a very disrupted life afterwards. And that research will help somebody one day, but people need help right now. And the idea of how, why do we help people now? You're fine, right? You have cancer. Go get on with your life. That's the fundamental disconnect that I think the public has with why we matter, is that survivorship doesn't really mean anything in the context of the general public. It's more like what are the mental health issues that you face? What is the PTSD of beating cancer? We, we talk about how... Um, molestation and, and, and sexual abuse in children or working in the military, you're, you're never over it. It's a lifetime of managing your, your, your balance. Cancer is the same thing. It, it never ends. And you have to be coddled and managed and cultivated and held and given anchors and positive feedback in community to live your best life. How can it suck as little as possible when the rest of your life is ahead of you? 
that's the biggest challenge I see, that we need to crack the world outside of cancer, that it's not all about cure. It's about living with dignity and with quality of life because you were blessed enough to survive. I noticed on iTunes you do have a few albums. Where are you in terms of your music career? Are you writing, recording, performing? You know, I kind of gave up the idea of composing and releasing more albums. Maybe one day. It's an aspiration, I suppose. Once I had kids, my twins are five now. My daughter really likes when Daddy plays the keyboard in her room, so she has lessons now. And it's really exciting to see her learn, and I'm teaching her with her, her tutor. But as far as getting back on stage, I've been doing that surprisingly more, and I never really planned for that to happen. I'm being invited to speak at events and give concerts and play songs from 20 years ago that I wrote. And it's, I think it's giving me like a vitamin B shot. It's reinvigorated me to care about my story, why that my, my story matters, and why what I do matters. It adds a level of humanity to my just being the CEO of some charity. And, and at the end of the day, it, 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 it is my passion. I, I go back to where, how it all started is, is doing this, and I feel I've come full circle by being able to perform again on stage. So I, I've heard you say something that that other survivors I've heard say, which is that you're 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 proud of having had cancer, that it, you consider it the best thing that ever happened to you. But I'm wondering if you could explain that for someone who hasn't been through that experience. Well, it's one of those like weird hindsight things you try to use to make sense of it, and, and you know, it's like cancer was a gift that I'd never give to somebody, right? So. You shouldn't have to go through tragedy to be in awe of life and, and, and celebrating. But oftentimes, you know, a life unexamined, right? It's that quote. So if you learn to question everything and you, you are able to face some level of mortality in your life, oftentimes it, it can encourage you and inspire you to be a better person and to appreciate things that we, we take for granted. This sounds like a Hallmark card. But I wouldn't be who I am today, obviously, if I didn't get, if I hadn't gotten sick. But I've chosen to make the most of it because it happened to me. I can't imagine, and it's not even fair to think what life would be like for me today if I didn't get sick. So I, I say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I've become who I am thanks to it. Matthew Zachary, founder and CEO of Stupid Cancer. Matthew, thanks so much for your time today. My, uh, my pleasure. Good luck. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.